0: The book of 1 Samuel will be in chapter 17, verses 41 through 47. We'll read in just a moment. 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 41 through 47. Here we have a very, very memorable exchange and a memorable, perhaps the most, one of the most memorable war speeches in all the Bible and one of the most important war speeches in all of history. First Samuel 17, 41 through 47. We read this. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That is a war speech. Well, the world is filled with rivalry, is it not? There are many famous rivalries that will be familiar to most of us. Some of them are senseless the Hatfields and the McCoys. Interesting books about the rivalry between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Some of them are productive Apple versus Microsoft. Some of them are silly The Incredible Hulk, or Hulk Hogan, sorry, versus Andre the Giant. Some are for a thrill uh, Magic versus Bird. And some of them are tragic, truly tragic. Germany versus the allied forces. And some of them are very personal and very sad. Mom versus dad. Husband versus wife. Brother versus sister. We see rivalry everywhere. We see it in politics. We see it between nations, in the marketplace, on the field, in the ring, and on the pages of our history books. And there is plenty of rivalry in the Bible. The Bible is filled with violent and inappropriate content. I like, always like it when Ryan talks about sandwiches in the Bible, so I'd like to talk about a sandwich in the Bible. The Bible is like a sandwich with a thick patty of battle and a bun of peace. You have Eden on one side and new creation on the other, and everything in between is rivalry and warring, fighting. We are three weeks into a series on variations on God's personal name, Yahweh. This is the name that God uses when he comes to his people in covenanting love. And because God is multidimensional in his character and diverse in his works, he comes to us with many different names and many different additions, if you will, even of this name. And today we encounter the name Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Lords of hosts is one of God's names that we are especially familiar with. Surely you've heard it before, but whose meaning we are especially unfamiliar with. Most of you probably have no idea what Lord of hosts means, and I was encouraged to learn when I turned my attention to it a few weeks ago. We're familiar with it mostly in name only. So what does it mean? What does Lord of hosts mean? Well, Lord Yahweh Sabaoth does not mean Lord of the Sabbath, although the word sounds like it, it's a different word. Lord of hosts means Lord of multitudes or Lord of armies. It's military language. It can refer to the armies of Israel or to God's invisible angelic hosts, his angelic armies that fight for him. But at at heart, this refers to God's great power to beat his enemies, however and with whomever he will win his victory. Lord of hosts is God's fighting name. And the name Lord of hosts connects us to a theme in scripture of warfare and of God as the divine warrior. Now this should put us on our toes a bit, make us think. Surely for good reason we should think that God is against fighting. 1 Timothy 3, one of the requirements of a pastor who is to be a godly man is that he not be violent but gentle and not quarrelsome. Peter tells us do not repay evil for evil and nowhere in the new testament are christians told a hand to lay told to lay a hand on anyone or band together to get anything done by physical force and yet there's still a whole lot of fighting in the bible and god is in the middle of it listen to what israel's saying and looking on the dead bodies of pharaoh's army on the seashore i will sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's what they sang in worship to God. The Lord is a man of war. And the Lord is often described as a warrior. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Well, sometimes Terry Ash, uh, when he learns that I'm up to bat that week, will ask me what I'm preaching on. And uh, he's a godly brother. He's good to think about, think about the text. And sometimes he'll email me a poem or an anecdote or something he came across that's related. I've probably used some of it. Well, this week I joked with Terry and I said, hey, Terry, come up with a poem on Lord of Hosts. And he stopped for a moment, and he goes, how about the Psalms? I thought, oh yeah, the Psalms are filled with poetry and songs on the Lord of hosts. Come on, Trent. Here's one from Psalm 24. Lift your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. They'd sing this returning from battle. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, he is the King of of glory, so there's plenty of fighting in the Bible, and it's not just fighting that God permits, but it's fighting that God's actually inside of, that He's involved with. He's a fighter, and He has hosts. And you say to yourself, "Well, this will be an interesting sermon." And well, I hope it is. God is interesting, and His story is interesting. And with God's help, we'll grow this morning in our vision of the Lord as a warrior and along the way we'll get some clarity on what this does and doesn't mean and what this does and doesn't mean at different times in the bible's story of redemptive history and we'll see why we would want god no other way since his commitment to fight is a gracious thing and makes possible our own salvation he did not leave us to warring to devour ourselves but has intervened and is directing history And all of this that we might more faithfully worship the Lord as the King of glory, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. And we'll do this by taking a look at three different rivalries this morning, each rivalry giving us a different shade of the glory of God, our Lord of hosts. So rivalry number one. You can hear the bell. Rivalry number one, David and Goliath. David and Goliath, how did you guess If you grew up in church, you've heard this story a thousand times, and 999 of those times were before you were eight years old. I've been a Christian since I was about 15, and I might have heard a sermon on uh, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. If you're in expositional preaching churches, you'll come across it usually when you come across when you're working through 1 Samuel. If you've been in a topically based church where the preaching is directed by topics, you may have heard this a lot. It's kind of a go-to text. Well, let's not assume anything here. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 17 and walk our way through the story. And just a heads up, I'm going to be weaving in and out for each of these rivalries, the text and storytelling. So you can follow along with me. The texts will be on the back screen as usual. And for 1 Samuel 17 here, I'll tick off the verses as I'm working through it. So you can follow along in your Bibles if you like. Well, First Samuel 17, 1 says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Israel was not thrilled about this. For years, the Philistines had been Israel's arch enemy, their greatest threat, and now the threat had come to their front door. And only the Valley of Elah sits between them and with an army on each side of this great bull-like valley. One army here, one army here, like an echo chamber. They can hear each other roaring on either side. The stage for rivalry is set. And in verse 4 through 11, we meet ourselves a bad guy. Verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath. And Goliath was tall. You could not miss him. First Samuel uh, 17 verse 4, his height was six cubits and a span. That doesn't mean anything to you. What does mean something to you is nine feet and eight and a quarter inches. This guy was tall. When he was born, I don't know if you can tell he was going to be that tall, but as he grew up, surely they knew they had a warrior with them. And he was groomed for this role. Samuel said he's been a fighter since his youth. And he was armed. Verse 5 through 7 describes the metals and the weights and the types of armor. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield-bearer went before him. He even has his own shield guy. Naturally, Goliath, with all this, was fearless, utterly fearless. Fearless. Verse 8 through 10, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, it's somewhat strange that the Philistines would send out a representative to fight when they would have a sound victory in a battle against Israel's army. It's probably a a way to minimize their own casualties. Surely Goliath will win, and they'll have Israel as their servants. No one dies. And Goliath was fearless, and he was also frightening. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul and Israel, dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's Goliath. There's the bad guy. Now enter David. And when the narrative begins to describe David, it doesn't focus on uh, his armor. It focuses on his lineage at first. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. When we meet David, he is not in line with the soldiers. He is the youngest of eight brothers. The three oldest brothers went out with Saul to battle, and David stays back. And while his brothers have sword in hand, verse 15, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Meanwhile, verse 16, for 40 days, 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. I guess every morning he'd come out and holler, and every evening, he'd come out and holler. And every time, Israel would clamor, shake in their boots. So how did David end up head-to-head with Goliath? Or shall we say, head-to-belt with Goliath? Well, Jesse sent him on an errand to the front lines with bread for the brothers and ten cheeses for the commander. i to leave a good impression on the commander. David was to return home with a report of how his brothers were doing. And of course, he would return home with much more. When David arrived, things were getting loud, lots of clamoring, shouting. It appeared that battle may begin to get underway, and the Philistines were shouting, and Israel was approaching the battle line. David ditched his cheeses and ran to the front to see his brothers. Verse 23, and he talked with them. As as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Key, and David heard him. Now, for most people under nine feet, this would be the wrong place at the wrong time. But David has only a condescending question in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Not shaken at all. Not dismayed or terrified. Saul thinks it's the end for Israel. Saul offers to make the man rich who can kill Goliath and offer him his daughter. He only have so many of those. He's pulling out all the stops. If they can get through this, they'll be okay. Otherwise, Israel would be finished. A lot is at stake in this moment, and they all recognize it. And here David says, in other words, who is this big loser? The contrasts are pronounced. Saul and Israel see a monster. David sees an uncircumcised Philistine, someone outside God's favor. Saul and Israel see a certain doom for Israel. David sees certain doom for Goliath, who apparently has no idea what he is doing. Defying the armies of the living God. Goliath is huge, but to David, Goliath is no big deal, all things considered. So where did David get his confidence? Where did David get his conviction? He doesn't he's he's moved in his spirit, even offended that this Philistine would say these things to God's people. Where did it come from? What are the all things that David was considering that made This monster, no big deal to his eyes. Scripture. Scripture. David meditated a lot on Scripture. And here, David is applying the Bible to his everyday life. He's just living like the Bible he reads is true. No doubt he would be familiar with Genesis 3 and God's curse on the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's in this part of the Bible, after all, that taught David about God's justice to judge sin. God stands as holy and righteous, and all of humanity under Adam stands condemned. So that every time Israel was deployed to fight an enemy, it was always and only at the command of God, not on her whim or according to her own ambitions. She was an instrument of God for his purposes, one of them being the judgment of sin on other nations. But it was also to preserve Israel, the people who would bring about the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. God would keep this promise. And that's part of his purpose for Israel, to keep this promise. David would also know God's promise through Moses in Deuteronomy concerning battle. For obedience, in Deuteronomy 28, 7, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And he would know God's commands for Israel concerning battle for their disobedience. Deuteronomy twenty eight twenty five: The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And your dead body will be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And David would well know, know well the story of Jericho and of Joshua's vision before the Lord instructed him on how to take down the city. We know the story of Jericho. There was a vision before it. Joshua 5.13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? A perfectly good first question. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. The reason the Israelites would take Jericho by walking, shouting, and playing a horn was not because God let them in on some secret strange weakness in the structure of that facility, those walls. It's because Israel's God, the Lord of hosts, is a warrior, and he fights for them when they trust in him. And this is reality. And this is the reality that David actually believes in. David's worldview dictated his Goliath view. His view of reality dictated his view of Goliath. But Israel doesn't have her reality glasses on. She prefers the unreality of what she can see only with her eyes. And a nine-foot Philistine looks taller than the walls of Jericho and more impenetrable than the Red Sea to her at this moment. Now this makes for an awkward situation. David is an errand boy. He's not even really supposed to talk. And here he is. He just put down his cheeses that he was delivering. He's unarmed and young, and young at least compared to the soldiers. He actually was probably old enough to fight. He wasn't a little boy. He's a young man. It's been 40 days. No one has gone forward to fight the Philistine. And the armed men are still terrified. And Guy says, uh, sorry, David says, Guy, seriously, what is the big deal? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. No surprise, David's older brother, Eli- Eli- Eliab, heard this and gave David an earful. It's kind of a funny exchange. Uh, 17, verse 28, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he scurries off and keeps asking his question and taunting the Philistine. Is David really just an underdog, though, a Rudy who's found his moment? A lot of talk, maybe? Well, Saul hears this clamor about David and calls for David. And in David's words to Saul, we see that he puts his life where his mouth is. Verse 32 Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, David, will go and fight with this Philistine. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you hard for me to pick up tone here whether that was genuine or patronizing a lot was entrusted to David for Saul to say go and the Lord be with you Israel's fate would lie in the outcome of this battle with the Philistine but it had been 40 days and there didn't seem to be any other contenders and David had a big heart at least in the eyes of Saul well Saul tried to put his armor on David but it didn't fit and that's because Saul was much bigger. In fact, you should know that earlier on in the narrative of 1 Samuel, Saul is described, his physique is described. He's clearly much bigger than David. In fact, he's really the only good match for Goliath. And as he was the king at the time, or the perceived king, this was his job, but he wouldn't do it. He was paralyzed with Israel. 1 Samuel seventeen forty. So David left the armor and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And this brings us, this brings us to a true high watermark of faith in the Bible and in the Old Testament. For good reason, one of the most memorable stories in the scriptures, the exchange that we opened our sermon with. And everything that David said that he would do, he does. And everything that David says would happen, happens. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Perhaps seven ways. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And there you have the story of David and Goliath. David says, I'm going to cut your head off. And David cuts his head off. And everyone else is afraid to approach him. Well, what are we to learn from this famous rivalry in the Bible? What are we to learn from this famous rivalry? There are certainly many suggestions out there. I did a little search and found a sermon online titled Giants in Your Life. It says that the principles, the principles that God gave to David to fight his giant are the same principles that we can use to fight our giants. Here are all six. You must be faithful with in the little things. David tended sheep. You cannot tolerate a giant. You must be willing to stand alone. You must base future expectations on past victories. You cannot use someone else's resources to defeat your giant. You must have absolute confidence in God. Or maybe there's a lesson here for the underdog. That was a lesson for the hard things in life. Maybe there's a lesson here for the underdog. VeggieTales tells the story of an asparagus with low self-esteem who does something really big for God. Or maybe there's a lesson here on being positive. One author tells us that David's positive words of confidence in God were a key to his best life now, and they're a key to our best life now. You know where this is going. Clearly, the story of David and Goliath is a much beloved story, but it is also a much abused story, isn't it? There are many applications here for us in the example of David's faith in taking God at his word looking at Goliath in the eye and seeing that God could defeat him because of the promises of God. But what is the main thing? What is the thing that we are to learn from this famous rivalry? On a sentence, in a sentence, it is that the battle really does belong to the Lord. The battle really does belong to the Lord. There is a God in Israel. He does save and not by the sword. God made a promise to crush the head of the serpent and the Lord of hosts, will crush the head of the serpent. When Israel trusts in him, he fights for her. And so David will reflect later in a Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's what we are supposed to see here. A great big God who keeps his promise, who will save because salvation belongs to him. So that's rivalry number one, David and Goliath. Rivalry number two, Jesus and Pilate. Jesus and Pilate. Pilate was, of course, the Roman governor with the authority to execute criminals by crucifixion. Crucifixion was a bad way to die. And the Romans saw to it that it was as bad as it could be, and that there wasn't a worse way. Pilate didn't stand nine feet tall, but Pilate stood with the authority of Rome behind him, and he had this instrument of torture and death at his disposal. But for just a moment, let's forget about the pilot part. We're going to do some history on Jesus, talk about where he came from and how he ended up standing in front of Pilate anyways. It's like when you watch the Olympics and they do a four-minute vignette on the, uh, the skater and where she came from and her hometown and her coach and the interviewer and all this to give some context for the competition. We're going to do something like that. and We will see, in looking at Jesus' background, why Jesus would have no fear and should have no fear before Pilate. So where did Jesus come from? Well, only 12 verses into the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there's good reason for that. The Old Testament closes out in waiting for a son of David, a warrior king who will come to do what David began, to provide victory through peace. And that's why... A little later, Matthew will quote from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. For the yoke of its burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. For every boot of the trampling warrior and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is what the Lord of hosts will do. A warrior child will be born. And this divine son of David will bring an age of unending and always increasing peace through his victory over the darkness. He will break the enemy's rod and burn his boots of war. Daniel has a vision of this one coming in Daniel 7. He says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's a vision of an attack from the sky with the clouds as a chariot. No surprise then when John the Baptist spoke of Jesus coming as a warrior king. He said in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I. His winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The son of David... clean house and Jesus Christ is born a son of David now let's fast forward to see how this son of David Jesus responds when attacked by a crowd with clubs and swords I know how I would attack if I was approached by a crowd with clubs and swords Depends on how far away I am if I am far enough away I run if I am too close uh, what do they say give them whatever you want right But how would the son of David respond to a crowd approaching him with clubs and swords? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, is where this happened. And you know the story. Judas betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 shekels. And he arrived with an armed band of men. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. And Judas kisses Jesus on the face to signal to this band who to capture. When the gang seized Jesus, Peter drew out his sword and lopped off the ear of one of these guys. You could wonder uh, how he had any time to even, uh, how he wasn't immediately destroyed. Uh, Matthew twenty six fifty two. But then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once, listen to this, he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Then all the disciples left him and fled. Well, this does not look like David's divine warrior king's son. Abandoned by his men and seized by a crowd. But notice that Jesus is in complete control of the situation here. He tells Judah's friend, do what you came to do. When Peter gets out a sword, he says, put it away. Twice, he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is part of a plan. What do you think? I couldn't call on the heavenly angelic army hosts to come save me in a moment? Put the sword away. Seized by a crowd and abandoned by his men in complete control over the situation, even as he's under siege. But by doing this, Jesus is not denying that he's not the warrior son of man promised to come on the clouds. Matthew 26, 64, he says this to the chief priest when the chief priest says, are you the Christ? Jesus says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And that infuriated the chief priest so that in verse 1 and 2 of 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And so now here we have our two rivals in the ring, Jesus and Pilate, Jesus and Pilate. Now Jesus's confrontation with Pilate is different than David's confrontation with Goliath. Goliath was kind of a flat character, almost an animal. Very clear, decisive intentions. Same with David. Goliath is defiant, but Pilate is more complex, and the situation is more complex. 27, 11 through 14, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed trying to figure this guy out. He's silent and he's apparently not afraid. But Pilate had his crowd to deal with and the crowd was about to blow. The text said the crowd wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted him destroyed. Matthew 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing in talking to Jesus, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate wasn't bloodthirsty like Goliath. He didn't even want to kill him. He thought he was innocent. But neither did he want an angry crowd. And apparently an angry crowd was enough to scare Pilate off. Apparently an angry crowd was enough to turn the Son of God over to crucifixion. And of course, Jesus did nothing to stop him. Jesus did not call on his angelic hosts when they put a mock crown on his head. He did not call on the hosts of heaven, his heavenly armies, when they put a mock robe on his back and mocked him. And he did not call on his angels as he hung on the cross and heard the words, he saved others he cannot save himself. Come down and we'll believe in you. He died like a defenseless, guilty man. And yet Jesus was in perfect sync with his father's ancient battle plan to defeat his enemy. Even as his feet were being raised six feet off the ground, his heel was coming down over the head of the serpent. And so the apostles preach in Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's plan. To borrow fighting imagery from the rivalry world of martial arts, it's like a judo move. Things are moving fast in one direction, but they will turn as fast in the other. So, what's the connection between what God did for us on the cross? What God did for us and what God did to Satan? Very important question. What's the connection between what God did for us and what he did to Satan? Was our main problem a need for rescue from the devil or for the devil to be paid off or tricked so that he would let us go? As though he had real power over us. Why did this whole thing need a cross specifically? If the problem was just the devil, why not a bunch of heavenly hosts? Why must our Lord die? Two verses. Listen carefully. This is Colossians 2. Listen to the connection between what God does for us through the cross and what He does to the devil. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside. Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And now from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The sins of the people. Those are our main problem. We need propitiation, a sacrifice, forgiveness, someone to die in our place to suffer what we deserve so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Our main problem was, not, was the need for forgiveness of God. That's what the cross was about. And when Jesus paid for our sins, he snatched death from the devil's hands. He did not pay the devil off as though the devil had us and had a ransom, although ransom imagery is used in the Bible. At the heart of the atonement, the cross is the atonement, our death. God's death in Jesus, for sinners. Jesus went to the power center of evil in the universe and he disarmed it through his death to save sinners, to release us from the devil's grip by dying for our sins. And Jesus was in complete control and in love. He was abandoned by the Lord of hosts, voluntarily and willingly and from love, did not call on the hosts of heaven so that he might suffer death alone, forsaken even from his father for our sake. And in the story of David and Goliath, we are Israel cowering in fear at the enemy, death, Goliath. We should not think of ourselves first in Goliath's shoes, and sorry, in David's shoes, but as Israel afraid of death, needing a savior, someone to take the enemy down. Or maybe we're even Goliath and the Philistines mocking God, not just not believing him. And in this story of Jesus and Pilate, we're Judas turning Jesus in, or the crowds shouting for his death. Or Pilate handing him over. We're on the wrong side of this battle. And if you are on the wrong side of this battle this morning, I urge you to flee to Christ for salvation. Flee to him. You are only safe in his grace, in his care. He will not be mocked for long. If you haven't known the forgiveness of sins, if the cross is not salvation for you from death, Believe in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And the fear of death, because your sins are covered, is gone. Gone. Christianity may be for you a number of things. Church may be for you a number of things. Jesus may be in your imagination a number of things. If he is not first a savior from this death, sin, then he is not your savior. And you're not safe with him. Go to him for just that. Go to him for the thing that he died on the cross to provide. Salvation from sin. And therefore from the devil's grip. And trust yourself to the Lord of hosts. That's rivalry number two. Pilate versus Jesus. Jesus versus Pilate. Rivalry number three then. The church versus the devil. The church versus the devil. Well, for those who have trusted in the Lord of hosts, we might think that the devil shouldn't be a problem. Surely the Lord of hosts uh, can take care of us, and that is true. And yet the New Testament says he's still busy, and we are warned against him and given instructions for how to manage him, deal with him. How does that work? Well, there is no better place to go uh, for a picture of our current situation than the book of Revelation. So that would be an interesting sermon. Uh, If it isn't interesting yet, uh, going to the book of Revelation is always sure to make a sermon interesting. In Revelation chapter 12, John sees a dragon. Uh, This is a symbolic vision of the present age. John, John sees a dragon opening its mouth, ready to eat a child being born. A dragon opening its mouth, ready to eat a child as he's born. But the child is caught up to heaven and the dragon misses his catch. And the dragon is furious and lashes out at God in rage. That's where we come to verse seven of Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven, angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Here's what this vision means. The devil is defeated, but he is flopping around angry, breathing his last, and he is still on the attack, even if his time is short. He is busy, even as his time is short, doing a few things. He is busy roaring, like a lion, tempting us to abandon Christ with pain and with persecution. And for that reason, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, And establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. And that text in Revelation that I've read speaks of Satan's judgment, which comes about two ways first by the blood of the Lamb, and second by the word of the testimony of those who believe it, whose sins are covered, who love not their lives even unto death. There's nothing that beats the devil down more than Christians who don't care about their life. You can't take anything away from those kinds of people. Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. And we look forward to that and want it more than anything here. And so Martin Luther can write for us in the famous song, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther saw reality as it is. My friends, there are charred bodies likely on the floors of churches in Egypt right now. Check the news, something like over 50 attacks on churches in the last week. 50 different churches attacked. In 2010, when my brother and I flew to Ethiopia uh, to pick up my son, my brother flew with me, we had the chance to fly through Cairo and, and connect with some Coptic Egyptian Christians that were friends of friends. A neat connection. Drove into the city. Uh, parked on a street or walked down an alley into a building, down a hall, down some stairs, into a room that, uh, where they met for church. Out of the way. They spoke of persecution, economic, couldn't get a property for their church without trouble. If you're a Christian, could hardly start a business. I can't imagine how they're doing now and I pray for them. I hope they're okay and I hope if they're in danger that they're faithful unto unto death and it's encouraging for us as Peter reminded us to know that our brotherhood are suffering around the world. Keep them in mind. My friends, expect to suffer. Be sober-minded and be heavenly-minded. The devil is busy roaring in persecution. his time is short and he is busy scheming in temptation if his roars are loud his schemes are subtle he comes in camo and he's a careful spiritual military tactician and an expert trapper and he studies you he knows how you think he knows where you go and he knows where your weak points are we have more to worry about than the devil he's not the sum of our problem we have sin indwelling sin the pull of the world But it's all a package, and it's part of living here and now. And the devil is real, not to be ignored. And so Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of the Lord's might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. This is real. Spiritual forces, cosmic powers, this present darkness. The devil will not come to you in red Halloween garb. He's a schemer. He'll look like a beautiful woman. Like an ad on your screen. Like that guy who is a gentleman to you. In the way that you wish that your husband was. In the form of repeated projections of the perceived perfect body type. In the form of creative justification for a manipulation of the books at work. That you know is evasive. In the form of a list of sins, bad sins, that you've got to keep a list of. Can't forget these that you hold against your spouse. With reason to hate them and maybe leave them. With that thought in your head that your parents are stupid. This this is a battle. All of that is warfare. And it requires the full armor of God. The schemes of the devil. So put on that armor given to you by the one who has already beaten that devil and knows him better than you do. It's defensive and offensive. All of it's spiritual. What got into David? What got into him? He believed God's word. But in the chapter before, in 1 Samuel 16, we see that the spirit of the Lord was on David. He was Israel's new anointed king. It had left Saul. Part of the reason David could stand as he did before Goliath is because he was the anointed king. He had the spirit. And for every Christian, we have the same spirit. You can look at death in the face and say, I'm not afraid. And you can look at that temptation and say, lie, lie. That's what the spirit does. We can see reality for what it is. We need the shield of faith to block the flaming darts of those lies and the belt of truth, and the spirit of truth, which is the word of God. So the devil is busy roaring in persecution, scheming in temptation and blinding the minds of unbelievers. And so we read in Second Corinthians 4, four, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So is there somebody that you just cannot imagine coming to faith in Christ? Well, how did you come? You were blind. God can do it. The weapon, proclamation, not force, not the state, not the sword, the word, the sword of the spirit. And so we proclaim the gospel, remembering Jesus's words in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible's an interesting book, isn't it? It's a war story, but the war isn't even over. I mean, it's, it's decided but the battle is still raging on. Usually, the histories of wars are written when the wars are over, and the winner gets to write that history. Well, God writes the history, and it's written for us already. Revelation 1 7 Behold, he is coming, Jesus with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. My friends, this is good news if you're safe with this son, if your sins are forgiven. And if the devil's grip and death has been released from you, I pray that it's good news for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you and praise you and worship you as the Lord of hosts. Father, you have no rivals. The battle is yours. And so we entrust ourselves to you. As David entrusted himself to you and to your word before Goliath, believing what you would said in your word and believing in your great purpose to defeat Satan and crush the head of the serpent. David, your servant, obeying your word and therefore you fighting for him. And Father, as we see Jesus and Pilate head to head, and we remember our Lord who did not call on the angels of heaven And who is sent to the cross for us. And Father we think of your word concerning the devil. And that he is real. And that his schemes are real. And that his roars are loud. And that he is blinding the minds of unbelievers. May we be faithful to stand firm. To resist. To flee. And to proclaim the gospel. That you might open eyes. And bring light out of darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.